As the Vincast is a podcast all about wine, wine people, and wine culture, I cannot recommend enough one of our supporters, which is Vinus, the iPhone app which recognizes any wine with just a snap of a picture. All you need to do is go to www.getvinus.com forward slash Vincast, download the app, which is exclusively for users in Australia and New Zealand for the iPhone, and you can utilize this piece of amazing technology to keep track of wines you're enjoying and you can record a rating and maybe some comments about the wine and then share it with other users on the app itself or also with other forms of social media like Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. One of the great things about the fact that the app has been designed in Australia, uh, it means that uh, users in Australia can provide feedback, maybe they have some technical problems, which do happen occasionally, and you can actually have someone, a real person, respond to your uh, comments and feedback immediately and try and uh, fix any problems that might occur. So uh, I really do suggest jumping on there, start following some people, see what other wines people are enjoying, and you can actually find featured users like myself who are generally wine professionals or other wine communicators and um, find some recommended wines. Venice is changing the way that we enjoy wine. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome back to another episode of the Vincast for 2015. My name is James Guestbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and I am a wine lover, and I hope that you are too. And I hope that's why you're listening to the podcast. Uh, just wanted to let you guys know that uh, I really appreciate it when people send me messages or hit me up on social media or even come up to me uh, in the real world. Uh, let me know that uh, they are listening to the podcast. They've enjoyed a particular episode with a guest or on a topic. And um, and also, I love hearing where, where people actually listen to the podcast. So um, some, some people have said they listen to it on public transport. Some have said they love listening to it actually when they run, some at work. And um, so if you listen to the podcast, tell me, you know, what episodes have you enjoyed? What topics do you like hearing about? Where do you listen to the podcast and do you listen to it with other people or do you listen to it on your own? Uh, make sure you do um, get in contact with me on Twitter at Intrepid Wino or at The Vincast. Hit me up on Facebook, visit the website intrepidwino.com and make a comment there. Um, or even, yeah, come up to me in, in real life and, and tell me what you think. Um, I love hearing from you. So for today's episode, I have got a really fantastic person. Uh, his name is Brad Hickey, but probably better known as Brash Higgins. And he is making wine with his partner uh, out of the McLaren Vale. Um, some of the most exciting wines available in the Australian market. Um, very eye-catching labels. I'm not sure if you've seen some of his wines, but if you haven't, you will probably never forget them if you see them. And um, he came on uh, and talked about his background, the journey that took him um, from uh, originally from Chicago to through Portland and then New York and then eventually in uh, in South Australia. So I uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, make sure you listen all the way through so you can find out some of the exciting things that uh, Brad is uh, doing with his wines and also um, how you can uh, follow and support him. So um, I will see you on the other side. Brad, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I, uh, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, obviously you are based over in the, uh, at, just outside of Adelaide, uh, and, uh, so you were talking on Skype, um, and I understand, you know, there were obviously lots of bushfires over there recently as there were, you know, in parts of country Victoria, you went in, you're not in any of the uh, areas that were in danger. No, we were okay. Um, we're actually, our vineyards are very close to the, uh, the Gulf here. So we're only a couple of kilometers from the water, um, yeah, it was definitely more um, Adelaide Hills that was affected by the okay. fires. Well, that's good. Um, yep. Now, <clears throat> as listeners possibly would be able to tell, you uh, you don't sound like you're from uh, Australia originally. Where are you from um, originally? I am born and raised in uh, Chicago, Illinois, in the U.S. Go Blackhawks. Go Blackhawks. Uh, go Cubs. Go Bears. Oh, Bears. The Bears, all that stuff. Yeah, sports <laughs> town. Um, and a really fantastic city to grow up in, really, um, right in the middle of the country and uh, big and bustling, um, but uh, really friendly people and uh, right on Lake Michigan, which is 
again, a great place to visit and a great place to grow up for sure. Mm. And was, uh, was there any kind of wine or food involved in your um, upbringing at all? Like were your parents interested in wine or food? Yeah, definitely. My mom was a, was a great cook. My uh, stepfather uh, was a, a really uh, keen wine collector Okay, um, and had a, a job, in fact, in, at one point in his life uh, with a really good wine sort of importing company and collected a lot of great old Bordeaux, um, yeah. which, you know, um, as a young sprog, you know, was... Uh, Quite exciting to go in there and and, uh, and steal a bottle of Mouton Rothschild or something. I had no idea what it was. <laughs> friends and and going out back and just getting hammered on like uh, you know first growth Bordeaux. Um, yeah. And uh, but also yeah, lots of really fun memories of growing up with my family, uh, uh, my mom and dad having multiple bottles over dinner and listening to music and really kind of chilled out. Really fun. Uh, uh, sort of growing up period learning about wine um, definitely was a, a big part of my background for sure. It sounds like, you know, you see pretty early on you um, got introduced to, you know, the important things of life, which are, you know, good food, good wine, good music and, you know, good company. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, that's always kind of the fun part. I mean, I think family dinners are not always, depending on the household, but uh, for ours, they were, uh, they were always really, really warm and comfortable, you know, yeah. and they, they lead into like, you know, here's 50 cents if you can name this uh, this tune type of thing. And so I got to know about jazz and started learning about, you know, different performers. And, and it was really a great experience. I mean, I really learned about how wine and uh, and food at the table um, could be really, uh, really powerful and really, and really amazing. So, yeah, good times. And at what point in your life did wine become sort of, I guess, important enough for you to want to follow a career in uh, in wine, or was it was it sort of dining that kind of got you interested at first? No, I think you know it's um, it's a good question. You know, I think we, me uh, in general, uh, I always it was always in my background. It was always something that I, that I would go into wine shops and where where I was wherever I was traveling or whatnot. Um. I would always be interested in the wines that were available, um, but it wasn't until I moved to New York um, later in my life, really, and started working in hospitality that I got really psyched about wine as a career. And until that point, it had been just sort of something I enjoyed on the side. What was it that actually brought you to New York? Uh, just probably the magnetism of New York City itself. I, um, I had spent a couple of years living uh, after university and went to Paris um, to, you know, try to write the next great American novel. Uh, <laughs> and then went uh, from there, you know, came back home to the U.S. and, and, uh, and traveled around and, and ended up settling in Portland, Oregon for about six years and really loving that sort of artisanal vibe. Yeah. That sort of natural beauty of Portland and and um, was and, Portland you know, a real hipster city at that point? You know what? what no, not really. It was uh, just kind of like you could still find houses that were right on the, the, the you know on the outskirts of the city for forty thousand dollars U.S. and mass Victorian homes, and it was just starting. And that was in the early nineties. It was just starting to kind of burgeon. Um, but it was obviously a no-brainer as far as like scenic beauty and obviously great bookstores and coffee shops and restaurants and wineries and Willamette Valley being right there. But I never got into wine there necessarily. I was kind of more just sort of riding my bike around and doing a lot of other sort of uh, jobs like baking bread and brewing beer and biblical sort of jobs that were really fun. And then I moved to New York just kind of to sort of get it out of my system. It was a, a place that I wanted to sort of go to to test my metal. Mm -hmm. And um, I had friends that were working in the magazine industry there. And um, they were constantly kind of saying, please come, please come. We think you'd, you'd love it here. And I went out there in 1996 to, to sort of start writing and doing freelance writing. And um, and we went from there. And I got jobs in restaurants and uh, worked in very good restaurants uh, with uh, – uh, Danny Meyer uh, restaurant, Union Square Cafe, which kind of got me hooked on wine. Wow, okay. Yeah. And what were you, some of your early influences for wine? You know, did, you, were, were, did you find particular countries or varieties uh, very influential or was it, was it sort of the, the people who were introducing you to these wines that kind of 
got you really um, passionate about it? I think in the early stages, I was really shocked that there was a, a, a career that you could you could do that you could actually make something out of you know. And being in New York, I mean, it's hard to write stories about things and stuff. And I was really surprised that you could actually you know there was there were jobs that you could like do wine lists and get into wine. So I at one point just sort of put my foot down and said, oh, "This is I'm going to do this. This is really interesting. This is." The part of the hospitality industry that really excites me, it's the intellectual side of it. You know, it's the side that I know I'll never get bored of and I can constantly learn about and and just made that leap. Um, so there was not really a region or anything that really kind of fascinated me. It was more like just that there was actually a, um, you know, a career that you could go down this road and go, wow, I can I can buy wines. Wow. Amazing. And mm. And, and sort of, you know, by proxy to sort of, you know, build wine lists and, and do that whole thing. So that was really interesting. I guess one of the benefits of being in New York is that it is, you know, one of the great wine markets of the world. Um, you know, you get access to some really amazing stuff. There's a lot of really amazing um, importers and, you, you know, you're going to get wine from um, all different parts of the world and including the U.S., whereas... In certain parts, you know, California, like San Francisco, I, I would, I could imagine being, you know, very dynamic, but still pretty parochial in terms of um, their consumption of Californian wines, um, and and and, that, and thus, you know, you're probably going to be at the cutting edge and, and and be able to see a lot of really interesting stuff. No doubt. I mean, that was a big part. I mean, not anything about San Francisco. I have no idea, but in New York, we, I mean, the first job I took, the first real wine job, was at at uh, the St. Regis Hotel on like West 56th in Midtown Manhattan. And it was, um, you know, funded by like, I don't know who funded it, but it was a fantastic um, uh, experience. And the restaurant was Les Benoss at the time, which was a four star uh, dining room that was kind of, everybody was in tuxedos and it was very sort of Louis the 14th, you know, wow. uh, core. And I was just like, Wow, exactly. I mean, just wandering around that room. I, I remember the first couple of days I was on the floor there just being scared, shitless, like, oh, fuck, bumping into people and just like absolutely in awe of the whole experience. But the the learning curve in New York was fantastic. And in those restaurants in that day, that was in the late 90s, was, uh, you know, everybody came through that cellar door. Everybody who was in town. Um, you know, you got to meet a lot of producers and you got to taste a lot of wines and see a lot of things that, uh, that were just phenomenal. So a huge, huge, uh, experience. Particularly, yeah. particularly in the, the late nineties and early two thousands, that was a real kind of growth period. And so, you know, there was sort of almost anything goes and the wines were still relatively well priced. Yeah. I, I could imagine that, you know, New York now is like a lot of other places, it's very, very, um, Competitive, um, you know, it, like the really, I guess the, the great wines are a lot more expensive than they used to be, so they're a lot more inaccessible for a lot of consumers. Um, that must have been just a really amazing time um, to, to be actually, and particularly to learn about wines. You know, you're going to be talking about some really passionate, talking with some really passionate people. It was. It was. I mean, to this day, those are the, the that was the big growth in my wine knowledge. Um, and this was before social media too, so it was really, it's a really kind of bizarre period. Like there was so many things that I could, if I was there now, right, you'd be like, look at this, I'm tasting a flight of, you know, Merceau from Rouleau and here's here, here he's right here, right here he is, here's his face. And, you know, all that stuff was kind of like, you just did it all internally with my wine director at the time, Joseph Nace. Um, and it was really kind of, you know, really sort of these little kind of, I don't know how to describe it. It was just sort of like little gatherings, like three or four people tasting amazing wines. And they would all come to see you because you were a four-star restaurant. And, you know, I can't begin to explain how important that was as far as my palate and as far as, you know, what I got to taste for sure. Did you have any sort of epiphany moments in terms of, you know, a, a winemaker you met or a, an importer that you really connected with or maybe – you know, a, a customer you served who kind of really made you think differently about wine? Uh, good question. Yeah, you know, I think 
Uh, by the time I was in that position in New York, I was just so in awe of it all. And I had a really great hunger uh, to learn as much as I could. I think anybody who goes on a in a restaurant that of that caliber wants to know everything uh, about the wines on the list, right? Sure. That's the main thing. You don't want to go up there and be and someone call you out on something. And it never happened, but it was always the biggest fear that you go up on the floor and someone would be like, tell me about the uh, – you know the uh, the actual you know angles of the flow and chambol and musigny and something you're like I, don't know, I have no idea yeah but it never happened um, but for me you know I don't know there was uh, there was no one moment that probably um, stood out as like holy cow I think you know there was a, there was many many different moments and many different things that happened from that position that whole first gig that first job for me at the St. Regis really opened so many doors and then once you worked in that sort of four-star environment you got you were then sort of allowed in access into other restaurants and that's what happened my career then then sort of catapulted into uh, working with Danielle Boulou and that was unreal that was like an amazing French um, you know that whole French culture of, of restaurants on the upper East side, and then from there, I ended up working with David Boulay, who's an American chef, and down in Tribeca. So once I actually entered into that that sort of that sort of realm, you know, um, anything uh, could happen, and it did. It was fantastic. Whilst you were working in that capacity, did you have the opportunity to to travel much to actually head out to some of the wine regions? Obviously, you know, you being based in New York, you know, the closest regions would be what Long Island and maybe the Finger Lakes. But um, did you? Did you have any opportunity to visit producers and you know see it in person? Early on, yeah, those early first days that I kind of when I sort of leapt from Union Square Cafe and was working at Lespinos, um, yeah, those were the sort of first things you would do was go explore your local regions and Finger Lakes and 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 Long Island were obviously a couple of hours uh, from New York, so you could you can make a big day trip out or a couple of days out, and everybody out there was really accommodating. Um, as I kind of progressed and worked my way up into the sort of pointy end of the restaurants field, yeah, you got uh, definitely trips to Burgundy and into uh, Champagne or into Spain or into, into Australia. I visited Australia as a buyer, um, uh, South Africa. Those were very um, common in New York at that time. And, and it's very, very uh, great part of the business to actually get to go and travel on trips like that. Um, so what... It was uh, was it visiting, um, you know, different parts of the world, and I, so I suppose kind of going to the source was that what sort of led you on the path that you know where you are now? Yes, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, there was a, I was invited to come work vintage here in Australia by Chris Ringland. Yep, um, and I met Chris in two thousand and four on a buying trip when I came down as a as a buyer in New York and um, with a group of like 30 U.S. Psalms and uh, came down and, and, uh, and met a lot of uh, really fascinating people down here and then also got a real taste and real um, fell in love with uh, particularly South Australia, which spent a lot of time here, you know. And, um, but, but did you express interest in kind of wanting to get your hands dirty, so to speak, or did Chris kind of say... Have you thought about, you know, making some wine yourself? Have you thought about, you know, why don't you join me for vintage? Yeah, no, I hadn't really. I was I was in New York and I was frustrated. I mean, I think like a lot of people when they reach this sort of, uh, you know, pinnacle of their, their career, I mean, restaurants are tough work. And, you know, when you work in them in, in, a, in a sort of three-star Michelin environment, they're they're every night it's like, you know, showtime. And, you know, I think that starts to wear you down after a while, as much as New York City is amazing and uh, I love it. But, you know, I came to work vintage here and I was so tickled that it was just like wide open spaces and really mellow and really, you know, really friendly. Um, I didn't uh, have any real designs to do that. Chris had invited me a couple of times and, and Dan Phillips, who was also a big uh, motivator in this element, who was an importer at the time, said, you know, come and work vintage. And I think they just thought I'd say no because it was too far away. You know, like, oh. And I was like, like yeah. A like a token gesture. Oh, yeah, come to vintage. Yeah, I was like, I'm there. And they're like, oh, Jesus. He said yes. So, 
you know, and that was it. It was kind of like, ah, and that was such a relief and was very scary at the time, you know, leaving my job and, and I quit uh, working at Palais and, and I just had, I just did not want to go into another restaurant job and I didn't want to go into sales in New York, which were kind of the sort of typical paths you would sure, take. Sure, sure. So that was really... Um, and you'd already done a bit of writing, which is another kind of path that some tend to take. Writing? Yeah. 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 Like I guess writing so. about wine. Yeah, no, I hadn't really done anything like paid work as far as that, but I, <laughs> I was writing a blog, I think, which was just to see you know, so my mom could make sure I was still alive and things like that. But yeah, um, yeah, no. So it was just you know one of those one of those things where I was like, I want to get out of New York so bad. And then and then Chris had said, come and work vintage, and or Dan, and and I said, great. And I came down to Adelaide and, and spent three months down here and that changed my life forever. I'm sure it did help that you'd actually been here before. I can imagine coming so far. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I suppose in Australia we sort of have the perception that Americans don't really know that much about Australia and think of it as such a, a, a foreign place, you know, so different, um, you know, when in reality it's not that different. Um, I can imagine, yeah, it's, it's probably alleviated any uh a lot of concern that you might have had having already been here yeah. was helpful and i'd really already seen how much i loved it you know it was um it was the real scary part was being in my late 30s making what seemed to be you know the third or fourth massive life change and that's hard as you get older to make that uproot and and move and that that was the biggest part for sure. But obviously you have uh, put down roots. What sort of, um, what, what was it that you made you decide to kind of go, oh, do you know what, I, I think I'd like to stick around here and you know, make a go of it myself? I think it was timing, a lot of it. I think as, as we get older too, it's sort of like I, I had felt over my period in New York that it was, I was there for almost a decade uh, working my way around restaurants and, and and I just didn't feel any real connection. I felt like it was not going to be the place that I was going to call home. Sure. It was going to be something that uh, that I love being in and working in and the excitement and the access to wine and, and everything. Um, the real thing that probably made it for me was coming down here and just making that shift and going, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to sublet my apartment and give myself a little bit of a leeway here. If it goes horribly wrong, I can always kind of come back in a year. But making that move and having friends that, like, you know, rented my apartment while I was away and then coming down here and then meeting Nicole Thorpe, who changed my life forever, for sure. Yes, well, I can imagine that's a pretty good reason to, uh, to put down roots. Yeah, well, that was, who knew? Oh, sorry, I apologize for the poor choice of words there. Right. Who knew? I mean, that was, I mean, clearly, you know, standing in an airport terminal in Los Angeles looking at, you know, uh, you know, my flight times going to Australia. I had no idea that I would meet a woman down here that would really like me, which is, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and that changed everything. And she, you know, she, she still to this day uh, apparently likes me, which is really good. That, that, that always does help, doesn't it? Yeah. So and that, that was a big changer. I mean, otherwise that would just be a tourist visa and had to go home. And the government said after three months, like, what are you doing? Like, you can't just go to New Zealand for a week and come back. Like, we're watching you. I'm like, really? They're like, yeah, what, what's going on? I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm just, I thought I could leave every three months and come back. You know, they're like, no. So yeah. Nicole, yeah. I said, well, we have to actually probably do something about that. So, you know, I eventually ended up getting a residency and citizenship through you know, through that channel of uh, the sort of de facto spousal relationship, which is yeah. nice. Well, that is one of the good things about Australia. You don't have to necessarily get married, but you obviously you have to uh, prove that you are in that in a relationship. You live together, and la la la. You know, the, the the equivalent of marriage, I guess. Yeah, genuine and authentic. I think is how they describe it. <laughs> when we're nothing but when we're nothing if we're not genuine and authentic in Australia. No, it's good, but they didn't really care. They, they didn't want to know that I could actually teach people about wine or anything. It was much more interesting that, you know, that I could make a fellow female citizen happy. That was more important. So I'm doing my best. I'm trying. 
Um, is she in, was she involved in the wine industry at all? Yeah, the um, yeah. So Nicole, her family had planted Omensetter Vineyard, which uh, we live on, uh, okay. in 1997, um, and had uh, her own wine label called Thorpe Wines for uh, a few years, probably five or six years, for sure. Okay, and so before you met Nicole, did you have the the thought about having your own? kind of wine you'd make or were you just thinking, you know, I'd like to make wine with other people? <laughs> yeah, not really. No, I really had no idea at all what I was doing, which was really exciting. There was a real sort of um, wide open moment. And I remember Dan Phillips asking me, what do you want to do while you're here? What do you, do you want to make wine? And I was like, you know, I really don't know. I'm not sure. You know, it was kind of like, I just was really open to anything that came my way. Um, and in the first few years that I met Nicole, I came in 2007 and, and, and we started dating probably after three or four months that I was pruning and kind of doing my sort of year in the vineyard, so to speak. Yeah. And, um, and you know, there was, there was a lot of wine that she needed to move and there was stuff here in the vineyard that we needed to, you know, to approach. And so it really just happened by kind of, by chance, really. I mean, that was sort of like, you know, wow, okay, I can help. I'll try, you know, I'll give it a shot. And she had her hands full with a water drilling company here that, uh, you know, that she had to run. And so it was amazing. And I was like, well, great, you know, I'll, I'll help you sell your wines and, and maybe I can learn about viticulture and maybe I can learn about winemaking. And it just kind of happened from there. Great. So sort of de facto married into a vineyard must have been a, Interesting. Um, what when you sort of started to look at the, the that vineyard and think about the kind, you know, the way you wanted to express it? What were your kind of influences? Did you you had, you'd obviously done a lot of research just in your professional um, career? Um, you tasted plenty of Australian wine, I, I can imagine, and um, you know what 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 was it that sort of I guess, um, pushed you down the path um, that you kind of now, are now, now in terms of the way you make the wines? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is kind of like a, a fast forward to now type of thing. We really, um, I really took a lot of time to learn about what was going on here and meeting people and talking to winemakers and getting to know, you know, people around the district that I could talk to and collaborate with. Um, I knew that uh, at some stage, um, I would probably want to try to do some things that were a little bit different. Um, uh, there was parts of the vineyard that had blocks that we could potentially try new things. And, and, and that's what eventually happened is that we thought, well, you know, it'd be interesting to put a new variety in here after seven, eight, nine vintages, which were really hot, really dry. Um, what about something more drought tolerant, like either Carignan or Miradavala or, you know, um, since so, and Nirodavala tended to be the kind of you know, one that kind of showed the day, like, oh, well, that's, that's available, it's come to quarantine, let's try that. You know, this feels like Sicily here. Um, and that was kind of really exciting. And the moment that happened, you know, that was, the, that was the moment that everything changed for me. That was like, wow, I can actually do this. You know, I can do a lot of stuff here and maybe we can make some wines from this and what, what? Let's do something with Amphora. Why not? We've we've been to Sicily. We've visited Coast Winery in Sicily, and so brushing has really kind of blossomed from from that moment. You know, it wasn't something that happened initially. There's a lot of like three or four years here where I was just kind of like just watching and talking and like trying to figure it out which side of the road to drive on. Yeah. Um. You know. <laughs> yeah. Before you, there's a lot of stuff when you move to a new country that you got to figure out. So 2011 vintage was the sort of first year that uh, we had fruit from Nirodavala that we put on the vineyard. And, and in essence, that was the, the first year that Brashigans was born. Um, and that was the idea was to sort of, let's try some different stuff. Let's do things that atypical to McLaren Vale and maybe to Australia, but let's um, ferment these uh, grapes in terracotta. And let's, you know, find a potter who can do it locally for us. And, and I think the real Brash Higgins thing 
the whole vibe of the label and everything else we do sort of stem from from that really kind of cool wet year, 2011. Let's just take it back a little bit in terms of the, the source. Now, the Omen Center Vineyard is in the McLaren Vale. Yes. Which is uh, southeast of Adelaide, not very far. Um, which part of the McLaren Vale? Southwest. Uh, yeah. Southwest, is it? Yeah, yeah, it's on the western. It's on the Gulf. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I've got, I've got my geography wrong. Um, I but do what, <laughs> which, which part of McLaren Vale is the Omen City of Union Eden? So we're on the southwestern part of McLaren Vale. So we're probably three kilometers from the Gulf. We can see it from our house. And uh, yeah, so it's in clay over limestone. Um, powerful reds, typically from this region. Um, what what uh, varieties were originally planted on that vineyard? Shiraz and Cabernet. So there's so fa- uh, fairly classic McLaren Vale. Yeah, right. So ten acres of uh, uh, well, actually twelve acres of Shiraz and five acres of Cabernet, and now we've converted three acres of Shiraz over to uh, to Nero. Um, so that's what we grow here, and those are the three grapes that we use for brushings. Was it a hard decision to, to, to graft the crop or to, you know, to, to work with an entirely new variety, particularly for, that, for the region? No, it was ex- I was ecstatic. Are you kidding me? That was like the greatest moment ever. It was like, wow, we can plant new things here. And that was a real eye-opener. And I swear, that's really kind of the way that Brashigans developed from that moment of like, wow, you know, we can really we can do interesting work here for like research, like for the district. Go, hey, here's a new variety that really works well. Maybe it doesn't, maybe it does, but let's give it a shot. Um, and that was really exciting as a wine guy, like, going, oh, wow. You know, and we can, and, and, and it worked out really well. And we made really nice wines from the first vintage in 2011. Um, it was really exciting. What sort of research did you do to um, think about um, how you wanted to express that? A particular variety. Did you, did you actually have the opportunity to, to taste some Nero d'Avola? You visited Sicily and, and saw Nero d'Avola growing, you know, in their um, particular part of the world. Yeah, I did. I, I mean, I drank a lot of Nero in New York. That was quite common. The Regaliales and the the um, the um, Planetas and those families had already had a good deal of Nero d'Avola and blends available. Uh, in New York City, when I was growing through my days in uh, in, in Manhattan, um, we um, had seen uh, very little in Australia at all. But it's a it, it, as soon as you walk out our door here, you can see commonality between Sicily and and McLaren Vale. So sure, at that stage, it was uh, it was a no brainer. You give it a shot. I mean, really, the research that went into it was uh, uh, talking to Steve Panel. And, and, and I love Steve, and he's such a really generous guy with his information and his knowledge. And, you know, walking around with an MW candidate who I had host, we were hosting, and, and, you know, he's really forthright and said, you know, we might not be growing the right varieties here. We, we should probably think about southern, Ita- southern Italy, southern Spain, or Spain, or, um, and, you know, Nero and, and Carignan and other things that can tolerate the heat here. And, and that really, uh, I you know, paid attention and said that's a really good point. And then when those varieties and Nero in particular became available, I was right on it. Okay. Did you think about other varieties like um, Alianico? No. <laughs> Great to Nero Davolo. Okay. No, no. I mean, I was interested in Cinso and, and Nero and Carignan were the three that I thought would be really fascinating. Mataro was also one. Mervedra, which we would love to have some of that here, more of it. There's a, a there's a shortage of it in McLaren Vale, but Car- in in a Provencal sort of way. Yeah, I mean it's like Bandol. Bandol, yeah, absolutely. I mean we, we know where we are. It's not it's not necessarily Cabernet world here. It's so those fall up. I mean, and we're, we're, you know, fortunately we're seeing a lot of those new varieties getting expression uh, planted here. But Nierdavola was the first that we thought would be really a, a smart. Uh, choice and it worked out really well. And what inspired you to to work with Terracotta and Fora? Uh, just the experience I had in the wine business. You know, I'd been uh, to Grovner and Radicon and met those guys, and and then I came here and I was thinking about you know 
Coast Winery in Sicily. And cool. Have you, have you it, visited? Yeah. So yeah, we it's amazing, isn't it? there in 2011. Um, and oh, th- I was there in 2012. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, it was a very hot year, 2011. But we met and fell in love with uh, the chef there, Pino Guarisi, who's become like a really good friend of ours and has visited here um, since then. And uh, we loved it. And so we learned a lot about that there and then also traveled up and started exploring Amphora and different vessels with uh, Frank uh, Corneliusen and Mount Etna. And, cool. You know, as you do when you're in, in Sicily, right? That's part of the sort of journey. Um, that all happened. And it was good. It gave us some sort of like like confidence that we could do something similar here when we got home. And you were adamant that you wanted to have um, locally made I'm assuming that it's locally sourced clay um, vessels made for you. Yeah, I mean, really, I mean, it was a sort of a light bulb moment where you're like, geez, wouldn't it be easier to just to find a guy locally who could do this? Sure. Like, I was looking at Spain and l- reading all about it, and I was like, that sounds like a lot of work, and I'd rather pay somebody here to do it. And, yeah, so A plus B plus E. We, we found somebody that could do it for us in, in Adelaide that was really accomplished as a potter. And so, Well, I remember the same day that I visited Cos in 2012, I visited uh, Ariana Occupinti, and I remember her talking about wanting to actually have locally sourced wood um, coopered in Sicily uh, because she felt that that was you know, a better expression of a terroir. Did you kind of consider that for the, uh, the Brashigans wines? No, not really. <laughs> it sounds nice. I mean, I really, I wish that well, you, you, know, can, you can say you know, it now. Can we actually get the clay from the soil of the vineyard? Yeah. And then I'm like, you know what? <laughs> really, I'm not going to fuck with this potter's his his thing, right? He's got his own clay that he uses to make pots. Yeah. So, of here, can you throw some of my clay in there to make a difference? Would it make a difference? I don't know. You know, can we just put one cup of clay from my vineyard into this, you know, your mix, your sort of um, blend that you use for everything you make. And I just said, no, I'm going to let this guy, he's the guy, he can do his own thing. But it's, it's, I mean, we got, the clay is right next to our vineyard, but you know, that doesn't really matter. I don't think it really matters. I think that's kind of a lot of bullshit. <laughs> um, now, you, I mean, what do you think? I mean, really, do you? For me, um, expression of terroir is about not in, is not intervening, and by taking it from the earth and putting it into the earth, that's yeah. that's a much clearer uh, way to express the uh, the terroir. I agree. I think I do think the wines that we make in those vessels are very soft, which is really yeah. nice. And I like to drink those wine, those kind of wines. I mean, the softness is is appealing. It's attractive. And that's what I, that's what I think. At the end of the day, those those vessels do so well. I mean, you know, argue whatever you may about you know they're valid, but they they, they do make a softer style of wine. Now, um, along that Sicilian theme, uh, a wine that you have um, been getting a lot more attention for of late, um, that you know sells out super fast. And I know that uh, your distributor here in Melbourne, John Fister, uh, a fellow American. Um, you know, he's had to get some more out of you, um, is the Zibibo. Um, how did you kind of come upon the idea of, of making a Zibibo, which for those who don't know is uh, essentially it's a, um, a dry wine made from Muscat of Alexandria? Exactly. Yeah, so it has various synonyms. Um, it's called Muscat Gordo Blanco in Riverland, where we uh, source it from. Gordo, I think, is its charming name, which just means little fat one in Spanish, which is kind of uh, unattractive. I didn't know that. I didn't know it's that. Sort of, it's sort of suitable because it's a big fat grape, right? So it's like a... Fat like, and white. They're like golf balls. <laughs> yeah, I know. We found a... Uh, well, we had um, basically um, over the... Since the Nero Davila we were doing, and, and I think that wine sort of brought a lot of attention to Brash Higgins initially was that Nero and Amphora and New variety, new or old, you know, techniques of winemaking, and and we'd seen um, a lot of response to that. And uh, it was kind of a matter of time until we thought about doing a white wine um, in the same vessels. Um, and I had met and and gotten along with a grower in the Riverland uh, named Ashley Ratcliffe, 
who's a friend to this day. Is that Wacky Drive? Uh, yeah, so Ricaterra Farms is yeah. the name of his site. I okay, think he's okay. he's I think he's dropped the wacky grapes. Uh, I just remember seeing that, like the name sounded familiar. I thought, oh, that's on social media. I think on Twitter, maybe. Yes. So he's now Ricaterra Farms, which is right. cool, and that's the name of his his vineyard in Barmara, in the Riverland. And uh, he's you know he pr- proposed this to me and said, what do you think about? Uh, I've got some 75-year-old Zabibo bush vines up here that, that uh, what do you think? You've made this Nero, this kind of really interesting wine, a red wine. Um, and I said, well, that sounds really great. Let's, let's, let's take a ton. I'll take a ton. You know, I'll come up, we'll pick it, we'll bring it back, uh, and we'll make a wine out of it. And we did that, and, and that was the first, that was it. That was sort of like, wow, really interesting. Like, what's, what's going to happen with this really aromatic white wine variety? We can leave it on skins for uh, four or five months throughout the winter in our carport. And, uh, yeah, if it doesn't work, then nobody has to know about it. And if it does, then <laughs> great. And did you take the same approach with the Zibibor as you did with the Nero Davila? Do you, like, were you actually just sort of crushing and dropping all skins and everything? Yeah, that's exactly. So the Nero, I mean, I talk to people today and say the Nero Davila that we make here taught me how to make wine. I never went to university or, or studied winemaking. Um, and I worked with some really smart winemakers, really good people like Tim Geddes, um, who taught me a lot about, you know, winemaking. But they weren't really comfortable with, like, the ideas that we had, in my mind, which were more like kind of like restaurant chef ideas. Like, let's, why can't we do this for six months on its skins and five months and blend things and co-ferment and do all this stuff? So... Um, so yeah, so the Zabibo was really based uh, as a uh, as the son of kind of the wine that came after the Nero. And we make it the same way without refrigeration or anything else. It just goes. Grapes come in, they're destem, they go right into these clay pots. It looks like a big jar full of, of gumballs, and then you know they start to break down on their own. They go through their own process, and then we make wine out of them, and they're fantastic. That's mm. it. That's mm. how. So it it's really nothing. More than that, it's really fascinating. The intervention is really just kind of punching it down during ferment when things are bubbling and kicking over. You know, you want to knock it back down so it doesn't overflow. And then we make a decision when it's time to take it off its skins. And then from that point, the wine's already made. And you're essentially just pumping the wine out of the amphora. Is the amphora buried in the ground? or is it just? No, I wish, but... The grounds here are really clay and really reactive, so we've got the got, uh, above ground vessels to to house the M4s now, which is cool. We've made we've got a, a, a sort of our own design for them, but they're they're not in they're not buried. So can you just like essentially rack the wine out of the M4 using gravity? You could, yeah, definitely. So they're sucked out, so the juices, the wine is sucked out, the free run that's on the top, yeah. and then you with all the skins, and that's just scooped out by bucket. And then pressed in the Zabibo's case, it's pressed by hand through a screen door. Okay. Yeah, really fancy. Wow, you've already picked up that Australian ingenuity. I know. Well, we tried to do it in a, in a press once, and it just squirted everywhere. It was like <laughs> they're nuts. It's just like it's really uh, the, the the skins and everything are are just like you know leaves that have been. It's really uh, it's yeah. It's better to do it by hand. Now, for me, the other really exciting expression of your wines is most definitely the eye-catching labels. How did you kind of come upon the idea um, of, of making these very, very, uh, these labels that really stand out um, on a shelf? It was a game I used to play with guys that I, and gals that I used to work with in New York about recognizing labels. The days we had off in New York, we would definitely go out. Most people didn't eat at home. And there was kind of fun to say, oh, can you recognize the bottle on the table? So I wanted to have something that was uh, recognizable, that was clear, and that was colored, for sure, um, using color. Um, I didn't want to be shy about that. Um, and then I had really, that was the kind of basic, uh, uh, you know, plan that I wanted for the labels. And, and I ended up working with a really smart group of people at Swear Words in Melbourne, which is a design and uh, graphic design business, um, really smart guys. And uh, we started talking, and, and they became my sort of, uh, you know, 
conduit for ideas. And, and Shiraz was the first one, the Shiz. Um, we were looking at traveling and thinking about traveling ideas. And I was, you know, Brashigans was about travel and adventure. And, and then we both looked at a, a, a sort of an airport tag for Geneva and saw GNV. And I remember looking at Scott Larrett, who was the, who is the sort of, uh, designer for uh, swear words. And we were like, shiz. And we were like, yeah. And so, the, you know, a couple of, a week later or so, there uh, appeared a, a, a shiz on a really beautiful background. And it went from there. Mm. We so have, you've got NDV for the Neradavala, and you've got yeah, yeah. NBO for the Zibibo. This is kind of creating your own language. It's shorthand. And I think in a lot of ways, it's uh, a lot of wine people know how it's, it is to write shiz. Like, I need to order 15 cases of shiz, blah, blah, blah. So there was that sort of sort of moment for me of like, yeah, I recognize shorthand and abbreviations. And then there was the idea of traveling in airports. And then there was the idea of color and, and landscapes and, you know, the stuff that the, the rest of the labels kind of look like. And so, yeah, and now we've got a template that we can work on and kind of do some fun things from the Zabibo and from the Franc, the Cab Franc that we make and, you know, we can kind of play around a little bit more with uh, with the rest of the the, uh, the, the uh, designs. Mm. Well, they like I have to say that they're probably some of the most Instagrammable uh, wine labels out there. I know, oh. you know, when when the Zvibo gets released, I see it on a number of people I follow's uh, feed. Yeah, that's good. I think it. I think that's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, design is important to me. I mean, art is important to me. You know, music, art, all that stuff means something. So, yeah, one have labels that we can uh, that we can sort of play with, and and have different people that that I like that we can that we can do something with too. And that's the Zabibo was done by a New York artist named Caravan Warden, who I've known since I was probably like, like twenty years old. So really cool to you know be able to to bring people into my life and say let's let's try something, and that's that's where that came from. And at this stage, is the wine only being sold in uh, Australia, or are you exporting anything? We are exporting. We export to the U.S. Uh, we do a little bit into uh, Canada, into the sort of Rocky Mountain resorts up towards Banff. Um, uh, in uh, British Columbia? No, in Alberta. Alberta, right. Kind of where the Rockies go into Canada up there. Uh, and then Omen Setter, which is our sort of high-end top wine, so to speak, um, is exported into Hong Kong and into Be Shanghai. Sorry. Okay. So that's uh, under cork and and uh, yeah. But I obviously I suggest wherever you are, particularly if you're in Australia, um, go and see your local independent wine retailer. They should most definitely have one or more of your wines in there. Um, we are sort of very quickly approaching vintage, um, uh, obviously. How are things looking for the 2015 vintage? So far, so good. We're really happy. There's um, it's been a nice cool break in the sort of heat spell that hit uh, last week. So on January 15th, uh, as of today, it's really, really cruisy, nice and cool uh, evening happening here on the vines. Everything looks to be completely through Verizon. So we're now at that sort of moment of 15, 20 days until we pick. So it's, we're getting really excited. We're, we're um, doing everything we need to do to clean up the winery and to, you know, make sure we have everything in place uh, for, for what's about to happen. But you'll, um, uh, I believe you're involved in various uh, food and wine events and festivals um, in some of the capitals. Uh, what what what's uh what are some of the events you might be involved with in the next couple of months that people can definitely uh, attend? Good point, James. Thank you. Yeah, we are doing um uh, the uh, Melbourne Food and Wine Festival uh, on March first. Brash Higgins is doing a uh, Perfect Pair uh, event with Moon Park uh, out of Sydney. So fantastic new Korean restaurant that a lot of people are enjoying and that I enjoy when I go to Sydney. Um, and a wonderful uh, sommelier, Ned. Ned Brooks. Oh my God! Oh, can we say enough about Ned Brooks? Well, he's he he and uh, Joel, your distributors up in Sydney, are they not? They are. So Brooks and Amos distributes Brash Higgins, and by you know chance, uh, Ned also is 
part owner of Moon Park, which uh, leads to an interesting event happening uh, in March uh, 1st at the uh, Melbourne Town Hall. So that's uh, that's going to be exciting. That's nine wines. So not all brass chicken stuff. We're doing uh, you know three different courses and, and uh, nine wines along the way and maybe a sake, something kind of fun. So to work wow, with okay. like Matt Young and uh, and Andrew Gard and other sort of importers to look for wines uh, that could be really fun with Korean food. Um, sure. And our wines actually work well with those kind of those dishes. We've We've had really amazing um, responses to the Nero and the Zabibo and how they work with kimchi and, and big, you know, spicy flavors like and nori and, and, and seafood and seaweed flavors. Um, so that's coming up. We've got uh, uh, on Valentine's Day, uh, the Vale Crew, which is uh, Brash Higgins is um, part of a group of small winemakers in McLaren Vale that we all kind of uh, pitch in and and do a few events every year. And and so the Vale crew is uh, going up against uh, the Adelaide Hills underground and the artisans of the Barossa Valley. Wow. It's going to be fun. And then that's going to be on Valentine's Day on February 14th and Saturday in Hondorf, the fantastic uh, German town in the hills. So that'll be uh, a fun, fun uh, event where we're hoping yeah. to get people there. All you Adelaide and, and surrounds listeners, you should definitely go to that because um, that's going to be some of the most exciting wines you can get in South Australia. It'll be a great day. I mean, really, it's going to be a fun day of wine tasting and Honduras is a beautiful town. So that's a no brainer. And then uh, after that, you know, I don't know, we're going to do, um, Rootstock's happening in November, I think. So that's going to be a big, big thing for Brash. So we'll hopefully be part of Rootstock again in November. And then, you know, maybe a trip uh, overseas uh, to do some work uh, with our friends in the U.S. And, and so forth. But those are the big events happening right now. So what's the best way for people to keep in contact with you and, and, and make sure they're not missing any news? You know, we're pretty active on social media. Uh, I do my best to kind of get out there. Um, so obviously Brash Higgins on Facebook or Twitter is, uh, is a good way to sort of stay in touch. And, and uh, you know, beyond that, just come and visit us and just let us know you're in McLaren Vale. I'll come to Adelaide. And Are you on Instagram as well? Yeah. Yep, so just Brash, Brash Higgins. And, uh, and no doubt, you know, this is probably going to be one of the best times for people to follow you because I, I'm sure you're going to be Posting some really interesting pics of uh, of vintage. I am apparently I'm a very good photographer. I don't know why, but uh, uh, you know we've got a very active Instagram account, and I love visual stuff, and and that's going to be uh, that'll be definitely uh, humming over the next couple of months for sure. Well, um, thank you so much for joining me today, uh, Brad. I really appreciate your time, and obviously I'm super excited to uh, to get the opportunity to see more of your wines in the future. Cool. Thanks, James. And as always, thank you for listening to the Vincast. I have been James Scarcebrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And you can follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Intrepid Wino and also the podcast on Twitter at the Vincast. Uh, I've got uh, a Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino. And of course, as always, the website intrepidwino.com where you can find every episode of the Vincast uh, over the last few years, uh, as well as lots of different writers that I've um, done about my travels and my experiences to do with wine. There are different ways you can subscribe to the podcast so you can download the episode as soon as it goes up on iTunes, on Stitcher and also on Player FM which I have uh, just discovered recently. If you do subscribe to the podcast on any of those platforms please do share, like, um, rate and review because it really does help me out a lot and um, again as always I would love to hear from you but until next time. Bye.